Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chad, and I'm very excited for another episode of the Industrial Real Estate Show. And I've got a great guest on this uh, episode who has over 40 years experience in the industrial real estate industry, got his start as a broker, uh, got his SIR designation along the way, had a very successful brokerage business before he sold it, then started an investment company called Properties. Uh, and that was about... Uh, I believe it's 2014. We'll jump into that more with with uh, Joel as we get into it. Uh, but I'm very excited just to get his background on what he thinks about the industrial real estate market, how it's changed and evolved over the last 40 years, uh, and then the real estate syndication model on how he's been able to buy uh, nearly 100 industrial properties using the GPLP model. So very excited to uh, to get into this week's episode. And Joel, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Hi, Chad. It's great to be with you. We've been waiting a long time to do this. I'm glad we're finally doing it. Yes, and we ha we had the chance to talk on the phone, and we've exchanged emails back and forth. It's great to put a face to the name. It's virtual, but it'll it'll have to do. I was really hoping to actually see you in Chicago this fall, but as we were saying earlier, I, I, due to travel problems, I don't know if I'll be able to get there or not, but uh, it would be great to go to Chicago. I haven't been there in a while. Uh, why don't we actually start there? Because I want to get your your knowledge and insights on your career 40 years in the business how it's changed how it's evolved and then obviously talk about real estate syndications but i'd just love to hear more about chicago what's what's the temperature literal and figurative uh temperature right now in chicago sure well uh first of all um we have 1.3 billion square feet of industrial properties well wow. yeah it is a massive market which means that it's ever-changing if if i had all the information in, in a computer about our market, let's say today, in three weeks, 20% of it's different already. Hmm. There's just so much velocity. There's so much happening here. We have uh, approximately 8,000 freestanding single tenant buildings and another 8,000 multi-tenant buildings. And we have 20,000 industrial companies here. So the market is uh, really deep. And I think the biggest uh, advantage that we have in Chicago is where we're located, being right where, where all the uh, U.S. Um, rail lines meet and where all the tollways meet. So that the central location is, is really a major advantage. But another thing we have is natural water. We were talking earlier about how I like to take a long shower uh, in the wintertime, especially just to be warm and so that you know the, the skin on my on my hands doesn't get all crackly and lake michigan is uh, a wonderful resource we have a lot of food companies here because we're not going to run out of natural um water and so i look at some of the markets that are are really doing great especially out west where there's a water problem I think that Chicago's resources are, are fantastic. I was telling you earlier that if Chicago only had good weather, it would be the biggest city in the country. <laughs> but, but the winter, it's really get it gets cold here like it does by you. Not as cold as where you are, but it gets cold and from about early November until late April, uh, it's tough. A lot of people go to Florida. And by the way, most of my investors, are, are wealthy people who get the hell out of here. <laughs> they, they go to Florida or they go to Arizona or they go to Palm Springs or maybe, you know, some people go other places like Puerto Rico, but I'd say uh, it's interesting. I've got 250 investors and about a hundred of them get out of town to go somewhere warm in the wintertime. Yep. Snowbirds. Snowbirds. Yep. Well, I can relate to that. And Hey, I, I agree with you. I, I've, been to Chicago I think it's a beautiful city and that cold weather is it's a necessary evil for places like Chicago it's 
it, you need to have those resources in those cities like that. So makes sense why it's become such a big city that it has 1.3 billion square feet of industrial real estate is a crazy amount of inventory. I th- think the last study that I saw is that in the US, there's 21 and a half billion square feet total. So it's 5% of the inventory uh, is directly in Chicago. That's crazy. Yeah, we're 5% of the country on just about everything. If you look at any statistics, Chicago is, a five, is the 5% number. Hmm. Uh, we, we feel like anything that happens in uh, manufacturing or distribution, the trend comes here. Sometimes it goes to the coasts earlier, but Chicago, it, it, Chicago sort of rhymes with uh, the coasts. And so when something happens that's new, we usually get it second or third. Also, by the way, our cap rates are higher than the coasts because those areas are, are um, for whatever reason, if you go to New Jersey and New York, the tri-state area, you go to LA, the Inland Empire, uh, those areas are really expensive compared to Chicago. And one of the big reasons is they're more land constrained. And we have, if you go west, if you go east, you're going to be in Lake Michigan. But if you go west into the west suburbs, there's lots of farmland that can turn into large uh, class A industrial buildings. Hmm. So it's similar to Dallas, I suppose, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, it is. Exactly. So take me back 40 years when you got into the business and take me through the journey on how industrial real estate has evolved from when you started. Uh, I'm guessing that would have been early 80s, uh, give or take. Yeah, yeah uh, 1981. 81 uh, to where it is now. Yeah. So I graduated from the University of Michigan and I went to work for a firm called Podolsky and Associates. The Podolsky family, uh, Milton, his two sons, Randy and Stephen, were all SIORs right when I joined them in 1981. Hmm. Uh, They had another fellow there who was another great mentor of mine named Richard Levy. He was also an SIOR. So I joined a firm that had uh, 84 industrial buildings in their portfolio that they owned with a syndicated group of investors. And in 1981, interest rates were 17%. You think they're high today. This was craziness. And I cold called them for a job. And I went and interviewed with Milt and his son. And I got hired that day. And they said, we have 10 vacancies in our 84 building portfolio and we're looking for someone to manage and do some leasing. And I talked to Milt, the dad, for, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. And he told his son, he said, this guy is not going into management. I need him to fill my buildings. He's a sales guy. And here's what I had said to him. I said, when I was a kid, I had a landscape business. And I went door to door and I got 70 people in one weekend to agree to let me cut their lawn and trim their bushes. And then I went out. I was in middle school, so I was really just a kid. I went out and I hired 40 plus uh, middle school and high school kids, including I had to hire people who had driver's licenses to drive a car with a, with a trailer on the back for the lawnmowers and for all the equipment. And I told Milt that I did those cold calls and he said, well, how would you fill up my 10 vacancies? You don't know anything about industrial. What, what would you guess? I said, Milt, I think cold calling works for anything. And I would go door to door in the industrial parks and I would knock on the door. I'd walk in and talk to the receptionist and find the owner of the company or the branch manager. And I'd tell them, hey, I have a building down the street that's vacant. Would you like to move? And he looked at me, he said, do you take no for an answer ever? And I said, no, never. And he said, you are so hired. He said, you start tomorrow, get in your car and start driving around. So that's what I did. So I learned the market by driving and stopping in to see people. It was really different then. I I would tell people I'm in industrial real estate and they look at me like this and say, (laughs) what's that? (laughs) And since then, as you know, it's become an asset class that everybody talks about being like the darling asset class because of what's going on with e-commerce and, and reshoring. So yeah, the market was kind of sleepy. And at the time, maybe there were 30 or 40 SIORs in the Chicago market. And today there's well over a hundred. 
Yeah, so it's changed a lot. It's grown a lot. It was probably a billion square feet back then. I can't give you uh, an exact number, but we've grown by 300 million, three, yeah, 300 million square feet. Which that's the size of a average market. Right. That was our growth over the 43 years that I've been doing this. So the, how would you say the buildings have changed? I I think a lot of people that have familiarity with industrial real estate have been in a building that was built in 1980s and they've been in a modern building so you can visually see, but how, how is it just how companies use these buildings? How has that changed and how has the developer mindset changed in those 40 years? Yeah. The, the biggest buildings back then were 300,000 square feet and those were gigantic. And the ceiling heights back then, the tallest buildings were 24 foot clear. So today, buildings are multiples of 300,000 square feet and ceiling heights go well into the 36, 40 foot clear. There was nothing like that. And most of them didn't have nearly as many loading docks as they do today. They didn't have uh, places to park trailers. And most of it was what we today call B and C. Mm-hmm. So what, what is now B and C industrial used to be the standard for industrial. And today what we see is a lot of precast uh, and tilt up, depending on the market. You know, tilt up is poured on site, precast is made in a factory, and then, and then it's trucked over. In Chicago, it's precast. So the, the panels, which are 40, 40 feet tall and just uh, are very difficult to move because they're so heavy and they take up so, so much room on the flatbed truck. Uh, we never saw those before. In the, in the 1980s, there was really no such thing as precast. Opus was doing something that was like a raked, it, you could see like raked lines in it. Uh, it was totally unheard of. People were building buildings out of brick. That's the difference. It was, it was like the stone age, the brick age. The brick age. Yeah. Incidentally, I, I don't know if you saw the article that UDI put out the other day, but uh, there's a few large developers, Affinius being one, Prologis being another, that are actually looking at mass timber. Uh, so Affinius did one just outside of Dallas, 160,000 square foot building, and Prologis is doing one outside of Toronto, 250,000 square feet out of wood, which is yeah, I heard that. Yeah, it's crazy to think. But I mean, you're right. There's so many different building styles that go into it. And, and the more modern ones definitely look a, a lot more modern, not just in how they're designed, but even the aesthetics of them. Uh, they've come a long way from being those boring boxes to now there's actually some... Purple, those are the ones we own. We own the, the ones that aren't as pretty. I, like, well, and I think that that's a big misnomer in the industry is that when they think of a lot of people now are familiar with an industrial real estate. And when I started 18 years ago, it was the same experience that you had before is that very few people knew what industrial real estate was. But now it's become so much more familiar with Amazon taking up millions of square feet in the public view. So they see it all the time. So I think people are now more familiar with industrial real estate, but they think of these big, large, modern buildings as warehouses. But the reality is there's still all this inventory of this B and C class space, which is very attractive to, to guys like yourself and, and myself uh, as very viable opportunities to invest in. So I, I was looking at your portfolio on your website uh, and it, I loved all the properties that are on there because they're, I, I look at them and I see gold mines as well. So why, why do you look at those ones instead of considering a 300,000 square foot modern distribution facility? What attracts you to the, that B and C class industrial? Sure. Well, the first answer is that our cap rates um, or our yields are better on class B and C. Mm-hmm. We have investors who are, are individuals and families. We are not institutional. And the reason that our investors like what we do is because there's a limited supply of the kind of buildings that we buy. There's no limit to how many buildings can be built out of precast or tilt up. And also, uh, we're infill. We're, we're close to the city. We're in the city. We're close to O'Hare Airport. And those buildings cannot be replaced for a cost that's anywhere near what they can be bought for. So we buy way under replacement cost, whereas 
the big buildings are owned mostly by um, institutions or REITs with a much different um, return profile. They're, they're willing to take five and six caps today. And my investors would laugh at that. They'd say, I would never invest in something that only gives me a 6% return. And so we don't want to compete with institutions. They have endless money. They've, they, they are full of uh, teachers who have their pensions with them and who have nothing to do with it. They don't make the decision. Someone is sitting in Seattle or in New York making decisions about investing and they have to, they have to put a lot of money out. Our deals are smaller. We like buildings that are 30,000 square feet, 20,000 square feet, where it could be attractive to many different kinds of tenants, manufacturers, distributors, service companies. They're not the big warehouses. Of, of the 15 buildings we now have, we're, we've sold, by the way, 35 properties in the past seven years. Hmm. We've been a, a net seller as opposed to a net buyer. Um, our buildings uh, are, are smaller, which means that they appeal to more tenants because they're far more smaller tenants than there are larger tenants. And they can't be replaced, as I said, because it would cost $200 a square foot to put a building in, let's call it Rosemont, Illinois, next to O'Hare Airport. And they're selling for $120 a square foot. So it makes no sense for them to for anyone to tear down a building that the land is worth less than the building. So <laughs> there's so much happening in the, in the demolition of existing uh, obsolete properties where they're building the new precast buildings. We don't get anywhere near that. We're not developers. Again, institutions, let them do it. Let them make their 5% returns. Let them take the risk on, risk on speculative uh, development. We buy existing buildings with tenants who want to stay there forever. It's a whole different market. I, I loved how you described the difference between the two because I, I agree. And this is ubiquitous. I've noticed this across so many different markets is that that older B and C class space is also a, 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 in a much better location from a either last mile delivery standpoint or being close to the con consumer base because it's usually within city limits, whereas a lot of these big distribution parks are being pushed outside uh, of the city. Uh, so you have access to large consumer bases, large suppliers, last mile delivery. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic and that it, you can't add more of that inventory. And even if you did add, it's prohibitively expensive to build a 30,000 square foot building brand new uh, when you could max out the site coverage and perhaps build 300,000 square feet. So I, I agree completely with, with that sentiment. Uh, on on the buildings themselves, what and I really do want to focus mostly on syndication on this, but just curious to get your insights on this. When you're looking at a building, what's what's the back of the envelope analysis that you'll do when you're considering how the what the building is, where it's located, some of the features, or perhaps things that it that it's missing? How, how do you do your high level analysis? Okay. So first of all, this is, uh, you and I have talked about this and I know you haven't heard of this before either. Nobody has, we do our deals all cash, no mortgages. So it makes it really simple to do the analysis. It's uh, rent. When we figure out the return on a deal, for example, it's rent minus the few expenses that the landlord pays, the tenant pays all the nets. They pay the taxes, insurance, maintenance, and utilities. And that gives us our net operating income. And that's what we distribute. That's our, our cash flow yield. And so from a financial standpoint, looking at a deal is really simple for us. We, we have literally a half page, and that's all of our projections. Hmm. People look at our PPM. We, we have, this is, this is our, Typical pro, uh, private private placement memorandum. I'm trying to get it on the screen, and it says eight percent yield um, with escalations ten year lease. And so, if we turn to the page on that that had the the dollar amounts, the the analysis, it's that simple. In this case, the rent is two hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, and the expenses that we pay that the tenant doesn't pay are about 15,000. So our net is about 200,000. 
and on a two and a half million dollar deal, that's an eight percent return. That's a, that's the way we look at every deal. Hmm. And from a physical standpoint, there are three things that matter with every building: parking, parking, and parking. <laughs> that's really it. If a building's got good parking, we can work with a low ceiling. We can work with uh, less docks than somebody might want normally. The dock, the, the ratio for the larger buildings is, is at least a minimum of one dock for every 10,000 square feet. For a B building, if we have two docks for 30,000 square feet, so it's 15,000 feet with, for one dock, that's okay. That's okay. But parking is really important because if we're in a location where there's not on-street parking or where there's not public transportation, the, the buildings are eliminated by the users if they can't park the cars of their employees. But when they grow, and this is what we found over the 40 years, when they grow, they add offices. And when they add offices, there's more people working in an office usually there, than there are in the warehouse or the manufacturing part of the building. But when they add machines, then they have to add more people also. So the parking ratio that we like to have is at least 1.5 to two cars per thousand square feet. That is the most important thing of all in everything we look at. Secondarily is, is geometry also. Parking's geometry, ceiling height's geometry. We, we don't like ceiling heights that are any lower than 16, but we do have a few 14 foot clear ceilings, but they're smaller buildings. Another thing that we, we really believe in is the way that the building is laid out. Where are the docks relative to the front door? Because if the front door is, a, is next to the dock and the parking's on the other side of the dock, that means that the employees and the visitors have to walk in front of where the, the trucks are backing in. There's a, there's a danger to that. We also don't like it when the parking's in the back because if the parking's in the back, that means that people who work there on a snowy day or a rainy day or a cold day, if they have to go to the office, they either have to walk through the warehouse or the manufacturing floor or all the way around on the outside. So I will eliminate any building that has parking in the back, even if it has enough parking because it's garbage in terms of trying to lease it. I can't, I can't tell you how, how I try to look at it like a tenant or like a buyer and I say, I wouldn't want to park in the back and walk around in a zero degree day to the front and, and walk for a minute. I want to be right near the door. So those are the, the critical things that we look at. The, the, the other issue is price per square foot in terms of what a user would pay if the building went vacant. Even if the rent is super high, cap rate yield doesn't matter at that point because you can't count on a tenant staying forever and when they leave whatever your basis is if you paid 140 dollars a foot for a building that a user would only pay 120 for you're underwater on day one so all that goes into our thinking and my my favorite deals are 15,000 square foot buildings with 20 car parking right in the front docks on the side exterior docks so they don't take up space inside which has become a big thing. There's a, mm -hmm. in, 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 our, in our area, there's a lot of interior docks and people say, hey, it's a waste of space. And it kind of is for most people, but make it 18 foot clear, give it a little bit of curb appeal. So maybe some landscaping and nice bricks. I'll buy that building all day long. I want, I want as many of those as I can get. That's what our portfolio is made up of. There's so much gold uh, in there. I love it. I, I I love the focus on parking too, because I, I think a lot of investors especially overlook that element because they, they're not seen through the eyes of the tenant as, as you are. Uh, whereas if you put yourself in the tenant's shoes, what do they want? Well, they, you're, you're hundred percent right. They don't want to walk outside when it's, when it's that cold. So I love the idea that every investor should be looking at it through the lens of a tenant. And the also point that I that I loved uh, is, what's it worth 
on a per square foot basis if it were vacant because i'm a huge believer in that as well and I, I think i've said it ad nauseum that people are probably even tired of me saying it saying this on my on my show is that i think that it's way more important to look at downside risk first identify the downside risk before you start making projections and developing your pro forma because that downside risk especially in industrial if the tenant does leave and tenants are always going to leave at some point uh if you don't understand what that property is worth on a per square foot basis empty or what the next tenant is going to be like that's when you're opening yourself up to a lot of risk so i i love that I, that that few minutes that you spent uh, clarifying that was a ton of uh, golden nuggets in there and i think maximus uh, joined in and said that too these are some great tips uh i, I believe he's in chicago too if i'm not mistaken or or is it Wisconsin. Maximus, uh, fill me in on, on where you're in because I know we've chatted before too. Uh, awesome interview. Thanks for that and thanks for joining in. Uh, Mark uh, joined in. Good to see you as well, Mark. Uh, he considers the employees walking into work in the snow and relates it to how leasable a site is. Incredible details. Yeah, thanks for the comment, Mark, and uh, echoing what I'm saying as well. I, th I think those are just brilliant points that you brought up there, uh, Joel. So uh, if anyone else has any questions as we're going, if you want to ask anything about industrial real estate, uh, we'll we'll get Joel to uh, talk about as much as, uh, as, as we have time for. But I want to transition into the syndication model because I think a lot of people come into the business and and they're told, well, okay, go and go and learn what industrial real estate is. Go and learn the market. Go be a market expert. Know what's happening in the industry. Whether it's a broker, an investor, an analyst, whoever it is in the industrial real estate industry, that's kind of what they get pushed into: is go become an expert in the market. Not a lot of people have an intuitive sense or even any understanding of what a syndication is. And there's some good books out there, uh, but there's not. A course. You're not taught about it in real estate. In, uh, when you get, if you get a license, you're not taught about it in any investing courses. It's something that people almost have to figure out on their own. So, you, drawing on your experience, uh, having 250 investors, if if I recall that number correctly, uh, 250 investors that have invested in your syndications. Why don't we even just start with the very basics of what a real estate syndication is? Hello. My name is Wyatt Hammond, and I am the producer of the Industrial Real Estate Podcast. I'm here to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by Bastion Pens. Bastion is an American custom pen designer that manufactures their products out of top quality materials such as stainless steel, titanium, and aluminum. Bastion Pens are a premium, reliable writing instrument that make the act of writing more enjoyable every day. Use the code in the description to order yours. Now back to your episode. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story that, that's kind of funny. I've never told this story to anybody. Uh, when I worked for Milt Podolsky, I had been there for maybe four years, and he was uh, developing an industrial building in a town called Wheeling, Illinois, which is a north suburb not too far from O'Hare. And Milt said, you're going to see the rabbi. And I said, what? He said, you're going to see the rabbi. I said, is this a religious thing? He said, no, no, you're picking up a check. I said, what? He says, yeah, my rabbi of my congregation um, where, where we belong is an investor of mine and we're building this building. And I don't, he said, what I do is I syndicate buildings. That means that I have a property, either I buy it or, or I develop a building on a site and I bring in 10, 12, 20 investors. And in this deal, uh, I've got whatever the number was, I don't remember, but maybe 15 investors. And they're all putting their money in as we're getting the deal started. And the rabbi's putting in $100,000. And it's very meaningful to him. You know, they don't, he doesn't make a lot of money and he needs income. So we're going to build this building and I'm going to get him a 10% return. And you're going to go to his house and pick up the check. And I thought, oh, that's how he does it. He gets the rabbi. <laughs> so, so I said, who else invests? He says, oh, well, people who are uh, owners of companies, people who are who have inherited money, widows. He says, I, I, people come from all walks of life. And so I started to figure out that as a broker, I was making a good living, but I saw Milt Podowski who had a fancy car and a place in Florida. And I went to him and I said, I'll go pick up the, the, the check from the rabbi, but will you teach me the syndication business? He said, I sure will. 
He said, and in fact, if you find a deal, I'll invest. I'll put the first third of the money in, but you've got to go find the other investors. He says, and you can call the rabbi. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, but that's my guy. That's not yours. That's my guy. So um, that's when I, I decided to become a syndicator. I said, well, if Milt can do it, maybe I can do it. He was very outgoing. He was very smart. His son, Stephen, to this day is still my mentor at age 75 and still an investor of mine. Hmm. Milt, Milt died a few years ago, but um, he taught me how to do it. And so I went out and I did my first deal and I raised money from 25 people, maybe uh, $20,000 each for most of them. A few people put in more. Uh, I had some work done to the building. So the contractor actually contributed some of what he was charging us to do the work. And I did my first deal that way. And they said, by the way, all, my, all the investors said, how much are you putting in? And my answer had to be as much as you are to have credibility. So I have to invest in every deal for people to trust that I believe in the deal. And we did the first deal. It was $560,000 in increments of 20,000 each. And then I went out and did the second one, which was about 2.8 million in increments of $50,000 each. All and cash, all cash deals. All cash deals, no mortgages. And the reason for the no mortgages was because it was 1981 when I started. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing these syndications, I remembered back to what happened. People were losing buildings to foreclosure. Banks have no sense of humor. And I decided to be the low risk guy. Milt was not the low risk guy. He was a big risk taker. He put big mortgages on properties. It's not, that was not good for me. Then I got into some trouble. Uh, I left the Podolsky firm to go start my own brokerage company. And the group of the four of us who started it were all on the same page that we were going to broker while we syndicated. And one of the investors and partners who was a, a broker at first loved mortgages and he was a great salesman and he convinced me we should do mortgages. So we started doing traditional deals where we, we would raise, let's say 3 million and put a $5 million mortgage on a property. And everything was pretty good until 2008. And then I had 50 buildings, I had 250 investors uh, the investors had invested right around a hundred million of their hard-earned money. And in 2008, there were tenants who couldn't pay rent. There were buildings that went vacant. I had seven banks. I had borrowed uh, from 63 people on promissory notes to make a bridge loan for things we needed. I was so deep into debt that uh, I nearly lost everything. Hmm. Didn't but nearly did. And I went into this deep, awful depression because I thought I had lost everybody's money and I thought I'd let everybody down. And the couch behind me over there, that's the couch I couldn't get up off of. That's how bad it was for me. And when I got off the couch and I saved the portfolio by just working my ass off to keep things together, which was so hard, I was in forbearance agreements with banks. Workout departments at banks are, are so difficult. The people who work there can be so nasty. They're not forgiving. They're not easy about anything. Um, I, I came to the conclusion that I needed to go back to my roots of doing all cash, no mortgages so that I could sleep at night. And it's funny how my investors uh, are, are two groups. The one group that wants to take more risk and doesn't like what I'm doing. And the other group that says, we love what you're doing. We love putting money into deals that make us eight and 9% with no debt, with no bank. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. I don't want to go back to, to the other one. My, my partner, whose name was Big Dave, uh, convinced me that debt was good. And it is. I'm not saying people shouldn't do deals with debt, but that's just not what we're going to do. And, and I tell people you should put some of your net worth into my deals, but you should also look at other deals where there is more risk and where there is debt. We're not the only strategy, but that's my strategy. And currently, 
we have three buildings with no debt and we have 12 buildings where the average loan to value ratio is 16%. Mm. And I'm really comfortable with that. And if people who look at it don't like it, I tell them there's lots and lots and lots of other people who will put plenty of debt on and take more risk. I'll, I'll introduce you to them. I love them. They're some of my, my closest friends. A lot of multifamily guys, people who uh, are in various real estate uh, asset classes, self-storage. They all do mortgages and, and I just don't. Take me back to 2009, and that's that was a tough time for the world with the global recession. And I can tell that was a very tough time that you were going through as the the weight of everybody's investments being on your shoulders and the fear that you were going to uh, let them down. How did you get through it? What, what was the game plan to actually get through that? And wh- how did you execute on that? Okay, I'm going to be very direct and honest with you. Counseling and medication um coaching from older investors who had experience with big downturns i i have one investor who at the time was in his 80s and he and i got together for uh breakfast every saturday his wife had just died and he was pretty depressed too because he was in a beautiful marriage for a long time and his wife passed away and he was lost and he was one of my big investors and he helped work through it with me. You know, he said, I've been through, he, he said something funny. He said, when he got in trouble, which is back in the 1970s, he said his, his worth, his net worth was negative and he had to work very hard to bring his net worth back to zero. I said, well, that's me. I used to think I had a 12, $15 million net worth. And now I think it's negative four. Hmm. He said, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard, but you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to figure out ways of, of uh, working through uh, your issues with banks. And I had to go back to my promissory note investors and I had to restructure the interest payments and I, I had to put a gate on uh, their exit so that they couldn't get out because if it would be like a run on a bank. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a time of pure hell. And I'm not going back there. I just can't go back there. And that's why we raise money to raise. So we go buy a building today, let's say for, for $3 million. It's a lot of work to raise $3 million compared to raising 600,000 and borrowing 2.4 million. Cause the 2.4 million of the 3 million is a one stop at a bank mm-hmm. to bring it all the way to 3 million. Instead of having 10 investors, I might need to have 40 investors. So I have to explain the deal multiple times and it takes more time and more effort and it's worth it. Yeah, especially, and I'm sure that there are syndicators right now that are feeling the financial pressures of their debt, uh, whereas you you don't have that. And I, I think of all these guys that have syndicated deals and perhaps took on way too much leverage, even at floating rates and what they're experiencing right now. I've I've got to think that there's some tough times out there. So I I think that that strategy is, is very safe way to do it. Uh, Yakov, thanks for joining in and for the uh, question. Good to hear from you again. Uh, Thank you, Joel, for opening up about what it was like to weather a time like this. Everyone just talks about success and it is quite quiet about the challenges of this industry. Thank you. I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Yakov. And, and I, I, get, I echo Yakov's comments is that, yeah, th- thanks for sharing that because I, I do think a lot of people, I, I remember seeing that one quote, um, I can't remember, recall the guy's name, but he had a sign behind his desk and he did a lot of videos and he said, stocks only go up. And this was back in like early or t- mid 2020s when the stock market just was seemed to be unstoppable. Uh, and, and I think it was a facetious sign about stocks only going up, but I think some people legitimately believe that. And they might even legitimately believe that real estate only goes up. Uh, there's a lot of real estate promoters out there that talk about how you can double your, your returns in five years by investing them. And in good times, maybe that's possible, but I think it's fair to say that we we're going to experience some financial pressure in the, in the coming years. And for anybody that got in the industry after 2010, call it, they haven't experienced a downturn. It's been mostly an upward curve. 
what what would you say to people then that and, and I think this I think the safe answer and what I, I think that you'd say is minimize your debt so then you don't have that same risk exposure. But call someone that does have mortgages on properties or they've syndicated deals and they've got debt in place. What do you say to someone uh, that we could perhaps be going into some kind of economic situation reminiscent of of past years? So you know what a, what a balance sheet is. There in a financial statement, uh, there's an income statement and a balance sheet. And I have one investor who has been through four down cycles with me because 2008 wasn't the first one. It was the third one that I, that I went through. And every time after the first one that there was a period of prosperity like there has been now uh, for years in each case, it, it's going to change. It will change. In 43 years, um, it hasn't just gone straight up. If, if that just isn't how it works. And so my, my investor who talks about balance sheets is he calls and he says, time to shore up the balance sheet. And what that means is sometimes it means um, recapitalizing. It means instead of trying to find a $2.4 million loan, maybe it's time to go to your investors and say, this deal's become a little risky because of the debt. And I'd like to bring in more cash. It's not a cash call, but it's maybe we should all pony up some more money and have a smaller mortgage and have more equity. And we've done that. And it's a little painful because when somebody puts in 50,000, they expect to be an owner, let's say of, uh, if it was a million dollar deal, 5% of the deal. And if everybody's asked to pony up more money and they don't pony up, it means that we're diluting them by bringing in other investors, but shoring up the balance sheet is the answer to that. There is, there is no other answer or sell the property, but you don't want to be forced to sell a property. You want to sell it. We, we have this, this, um, track record of only selling to users except for five buildings. So we've, we've done a hundred acquisitions. We have 15 buildings. That means I've sold 85 of the 85, five have been sold to investors. And by the way, only one investor, it's called ML realty. They're, they're in Dallas. They're in Chicago. I'm not sure they may be in another city. Uh, They're backed by a pension fund on the West coast. And I love those guys. And every time I've ever sold on a cap rate, I've sold to them. I trust them. I like them. They pay, they've paid a fair price. But all the other 80 buildings were sold to users. We don't want to be in a position where we have to sell in a bad market on a cap rate. Because cap rates do go up. When the market's bad, interest rates go up. Values go down. Cap rates will go up. You know, these idiots who said cap rates will always go down. Idiots. I mean, come on, really? It's just not the way it works. Cap rates will go up when the market gets bad. That's how it works. So anybody who puts together a syndication and says, we're going to get a 20 IRR. And the way we're going to get it is cap rates today are five and we're going to sell it at a four. Well, maybe not. (laughs) So. And then the other thing that happens is people try to do these these short-term deals. Syndicators, for some reason, are scared of their investors and they're scared to say, we're long-term holders. They're scared. They're, they're afraid people won't go in. They're, 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 certain investors say, I don't like being in long-term. It's illiquid. Yes, real estate's illiquid. That's why you buy it. You hold it for a long time and it goes up in value over time but you can't predict that it's going to go up over the next three years. It may not. So if you have a three-year outlook, it's risky. There's a a time risk. We have a building that we've owned since 1989. Hmm. Think about that. That's 34 years. We've had the same tenant for 18 years. It's cash flowing. It's a great building. It's a great size. It's got good parking. It's got good loading. Why would we sell it? Why would we sell it? What, what, what are we going to replace it with? And that's been another thing that 
people either like it or they don't like it. I say, we're long-term holders. We're not looking to get you in and get you out. And this building has a tenant called Feed My Starving Children. It's a not-for-profit. It's a heartwarming operation where people go pack food uh, that's sent overseas to starving children. Hmm. It's an amazing thing. And we've had them for so many years. And our returns running about 10 or 11% on the original investment. Where are we going to get that? With a great piece of property that's not really replaceable. So here's what happened. I ran into uh, the problem of certain investors wanting to get out of the deal. So I came up with an idea to give them liquidity, which was I started um, a process called a Dutch auction, which is how treasuries are sold by the federal government. And it's complicated, but it's sort of like a, a way to make bids if you're a buyer and a way to accept bids if you're a seller where it's um, a sealed envelope bid. You don't know what the price is going to be until the end. And then each of the sellers was given an opportunity if they didn't like the price that was offered to opt out and to keep their piece. So we took out 60% of the investors because they'd been in it for a long time and they wanted out. And the other group stayed in and they loved the deal. And the new investors are very happy. And our debt on that one, the building's probably worth a million eight and the debt at this moment's 500,000. It's just a complicated thing syndication. And by the way, when you take somebody out, that's, that's called SEC rule 144. When we put a security out there, when we go out to raise money for a new deal, it's actually securities from the definition of the, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm not sure what it is in Canada, but I'm sure it's similar. But when somebody buys somebody else out, they don't have to be accredited to be the buyer because it's not securities. Rule 144 is a sale from one investor to another investor. Hmm. So all of our deals now have multiple investors that have gone out and other ones that have come in, depending on what their needs are. Very interesting. Yeah. Can we go back to even just uh, defining difference between GP and LP and what the legal structure looks like for a syndication? Sure. GP uh, for us means we organize the uh, acquisition. We find the building. Uh, we do the due diligence. We put together the private placement memorandum. We raise the money and then we manage the asset and we manage the property. LP, the limited partners, um, just invest and they have to trust whoever they're giving the money to that, that the general partner, the GP, is going to be a good shepherd with their money. And you hear that? That's my fax machine. I still have a fax machine. Uh, <laughs> Incoming. <laughs> Incoming. I'm, I want to know yeah. who's faxing you. <laughs> is this 2023? Who's faxing you? I don't know. I never use it. It's here. It just started ringing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the LPs, we, we have 250 LPs in our group. And the average investor is, is with us in at least four deals. And they can put in small amounts. What, what makes it nice is if somebody's very wealthy, they can put in a million dollars. They can put in half a million dollars. But if somebody's just an ordinary, uh, somewhat comfortable person that's, that's accredited, they can put in 50000 or 25000 And what, what I tell investors is you should never invest any more than 3% of your personal net worth in any one deal. If you do, you're making an error because if the deal goes bad, you're losing too much. And if the deal's great, you have exposure to it. So I actually often uh, go a little bit further than that. I tell people, if you're really smart, you only invest 1% of your net worth in any one deal. Hmm. So what that does is the, the limited partner starts thinking, well, how much money do I have in my estate? I've got my house. I've got my business. I've got my stocks. I've got my bonds. I've got my real estate. Let's see, $5 million. And Joel says I should only invest 1% in any of his deals. 50,000. And I don't 
push people to invest more. I push them to invest less and go into other deals in the future because I'm a big proponent of diversification. And each person has to decide what's right for them. My, my investor who's got $100 million worth of assets, he can put a million dollars in it, be at 1%. But we like people to start small because then they get to know us. I've got a guy in Florida who I'd say he's maybe one of the wealthiest people in the United States. He's just, he's on the Forbes 400 list. And I sent him one of my PPMs and I said, how much you want to put in? And he said, what's your minimum? I said, 25,000. He says, I'll test you. Hmm. It's, it's like a joke for him. He makes that much in an hour. <laughs> so, but I'm happy when people uh, go in for the amount that makes them comfortable. I don't like them to stretch. And we don't do funds. We used to do funds. Funds are bad for me. It, it makes me feel like I've, I've got... Um, pressure, like a hole in my pocket to spend the money. I like to look at individual deals and syndicate them individually and let every investor figure out if they like the math and the geometry and the geography. And I have an eight person advisory board, my, my most sophisticated, capable investors. I don't buy anything without talking to all eight of them and all eight of them then invest. If one says, I don't like this location, it's a dangerous neighborhood, we talk it out. And I learn so much when I put a deal out there by talking to those eight people first. By the time I get to the ninth person, I probably have had 30 questions that otherwise I never would have even thought of. What are the typical ways that the deals get structured from a return standpoint on what gets modeled and then so there's a preferential return and then I, I, you do some sort of waterfall structure as, as well yeah, yeah. How, how do those you don't just need to share any of the ones that you've done but what what would be something that someone could expect if they were here's one this this is this is the one i just showed you this is i think you sent me that one as well if i'm not mistaken yeah they all look the same it's probably a different one but okay this, it's an eight percent um projected return so that means that if I really believe it's going to make 8% starting day one, I, I make the, the pref 8%. The investors get 8% cumulatively from day one before we as the syndicator or the GP get any kind of uh, promote, which is a disproportionate share of the profits after they get their 8%. After they get their 8%, we get 20% of everything over the 8% for putting the deal together. And we, we get it both from the rent and potentially on a sale in the future. And after they hit 17%, then we change the return and we start getting 50%. We call that the home run bonus for the GP. Mm -hmm. And we've had a few of those. We had, haven't had a lot of those. Maybe out of the 80 properties, that, 85 that we've sold, I'd say maybe a third of them have gotten into the tier where the 17% goes to the investors. Usually our, our, our IRR or average return over time is 14%. But we have lost money on seven deals and we're very upfront about it. And I always start when people ask me about my business and who we are, I start with my depression and the hell that we were living in because of things that went bad in 2008. I start with that. If that doesn't shut them down, then I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I say in our, in our PPM, we have lost money on seven deals. And I can tell you all of the war stories, the horror stories of the seven bad deals. And I can also tell you that every single one of them, if we had no debt back then, there wouldn't have been a loss. We'd be great today. Isn't that interesting? we're going to have to do a follow-up episode in the fall here. Cause I need to hear more about these seven deals because I, I think like, a, like people that are tuned in, 
you learn a lot from those deals that go wrong. Uh, you, it's, it's almost like the gambler's mentality where uh, you always hear about the gambler who made money at the casino, but you don't hear the gambler talking about the ones that he lost. Uh, and in real estate, that's similar. We always hear about the home runs that people are hitting. This guy just sold the property, made $10 million, or this, this guy had a huge lift. But you don't hear those stories about when things go wrong. So if you're up for it, sometime in the fall, we should unpack uh, some of those seven deals well, I want to tell you something really interesting. I've studied gambling because I think when I started doing deals with debt where Big Dave wanted me to do that, that he was a gambler. Hmm. And it wasn't a coincidence that we used to go to casinos together and gamble a lot. He loved it. I loved it. Um, gambling is a disease. And I believe that a lot of syndicators and developers and investors, stock market investors, day traders, they don't know it. They're undiagnosed compulsive gamblers. Hmm. And I believe that if you study the Gamblers Anonymous program and the, the character traits that go along with gamblers, they're generally, before they go in for treatment and join the group, they're generally liars. I mean, really bad liars. They lie to their wives. They lie to their investors. They lie to everybody. And they play what's called the big shot game where they try to prove to everyone what a, what a big shot they are. Like they can barely afford to do certain things in their lives and they're driving the fanciest freaking car ever. And they join the fanciest country club. And it's like, they're just hanging on that. That is a, that is a character trait of gamblers. And I think what happens to some real estate investors is without knowing it, they get addicted to their own adrenaline. When deals start to work, the worst thing that can happen to a, to a, a new gamblers they go into a casino and they win the jackpot and now they think it's easy but remember every gambler loses in the long run because the casino makes 53 and you make 47 percent and they have endless money and you don't so i've studied that and what i want to be is the opposite of a gambler i don't want the gambler traits i don't like any part of big shotism this whole bullshitting and lying stuff I, I see people do that. And I see a lot of people who, who put these courses out on, on the internet and they say, quit your job. Don't work anymore. Work 30 minutes a month. That is bullshit. Those people are appealing to people who are future gamblers potentially. And it's just so not right. Of course you shouldn't quit your job. Work, work harder at your job and do some investing. Don't quit your job. Like, I, I just don't get it. So this whole gambling thing that you brought up is a, is a very important subject to me. I want to do no gambling with my real estate. Ditto. I, I have said this uh, numerous times as well is that uh, I think real estate is the antithesis of getting rich quick. I think it, it needs to have a multi-year, if not dozens of year uh, trajectory so that you can actually uh, do it. Ready? Gamblers Anonymous. Yes, sir. I've studied it. This is their 17-page book. <laughs> it, well, defi it defined me to a T when I was doing deals with mortgages with Big Dave. Is Big to Dave still around? Huh? Is Big Dave still around? Unfortunately, no. He died. Oh. He died at age 48 um, of cancer. And um, it was the saddest thing. He's got, he had two young kids and a wife who's a surgeon and he died and he, he left me with a gigantic mess. Hmm. And that was part of working through it. Well, it, it, it's clear that you came through on the other side and employed a lot of those techniques that you had. So I, uh, I do want to wrap up and I saw there were some uh, questions uh, and maybe even a comment that came in. So we still have a couple minutes. Uh, warehouse investor, what's better, sole ownership, JV, GP, or LP? I think that's probably a long question to answer, Joel. Why don't we, if you're up for it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you're up for it, in the, I'd love to have you back on in the fall. Uh, just sure. share some more of those stories about those seven deals, get into that. And maybe we could even address that question that Warehouse uh, Investor had there. Uh, Maximus had a question. Uh, how does someone find the next Elmhurst before it becomes the it area? Any idea on how to identify the up and coming market before everyone else does? Yeah, you got to be laser focused on a market. You can't go around doing deals in every city in, in, 
and Canada or every city in in the states or anywhere. The 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 focus, knowing the ins and outs and talking to people every day. I tell my people who work for me, if they don't have twenty five phone calls a day, they're not learning enough. And if they have twenty five calls a day, including meetings, lunches, and whatever. They're going to learn a lot. We, we bought some properties in an area that was really run down. And I, I knew the market. And my cousin owned a building a few blocks away. He says, this is going to be the hottest area in Chicago in about 10 years. And it became what's known as the Fulton Market. And we bought properties there because he told us that. So we listened to what, what neighbors were saying. And if you study the Fulton Market, um, properties went from being worth a million to being worth 30 million. Whoa. Yeah, we got lucky. We bought two buildings there. But how do you know? It's sort of a gut thing when you talk to enough people and you get a feel for what's going on. You sort of have to know about zoning. You have to know who the mayor is and who the alderman is and sort of get a vision of of what their vision is to know where the future is going to be. I I like that comment. And and I agree. There's nothing bad comes from talking to more people, <laughs> whether it's just cold calling people, going for lunches, talking to bankers, lawyers, other brokers, other investors, never hurts getting other people's uh, uh, introspect. So thanks for that. Uh, Charles, thanks for joining in and, and the comment. This really is a masterclass. I couldn't agree with you more. Joel, you hit everything on the head here. Uh, I, there's much more uh, great show. Th- thanks, Curtis. Thanks for joining as well. You touched on so many great things and, and I, I want to know more. So we'll tee off uh, up, offline a time to uh, chat more in the fall uh, and then dive into some of those things about seven deals, talk more about the gambling, talk more about GPs, LPs versus JVs or private ownership. And uh, just wrapping up on that, uh, I'll leave, I do have a link to your website, Brit Properties, and to your LinkedIn in the description. So I'd encourage people to connect with you and reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, Any other way that people can get in touch with you or those the two best? Yeah, definitely our our, website. website there's a contact page and i get it a minute after it's sent and i return calls within usually an hour awesome uh well i'll just want to wrap up by saying if you like this episode please give us a thumbs up if you didn't like this episode give us a thumbs down i always like feedback good or bad uh leave a comment if there's uh, any questions you have or anything you just want to leave a comment on and joel especially thank you to you for sharing your insights and then opening up on, uh, on, on your experience with that as well. I thought it was, it was a great conversation. I really do appreciate your time. Thanks, Chad. Ditto. Okay. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Joel. Well, I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode. Thanks.